Someone told me one time, some of you may know that in addition to money management, in my spare time I've written several books on eschatology, Sunday's Coming, Even at the Door, Ready or Not, Battle of the Spirits, those kind of books. And uh, they said, this guy came to me and he says, you know, I have this wonderful idea. We know that you believe Jesus coming is near and uh, you are you know, excited about that. And anybody loves Jesus is excited about that, aren't they? I mean, you, you can see. And, uh, but you're also recognizing that we need to raise money to finish the work. So I says, I've got a wonderful idea. Why doesn't everybody get cash advances on all their credit cards and get loans on their houses and everything, get all the money we can together, quickly finish the work, and then we can thumb our nose at the devil on the way to heaven and let him pay off the bills in the millennium. <laughs> Does that sound like a plan? <laughs> Anybody have an idea of why it wouldn't work? Well, first of all, it's not a good Christian witness. You understand that. But the worst part about it is Daniel 12, verse 4 comes into play. And that's before Jesus comes back. There's a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. And the people that are in debt are going to have the worst time of it. Really true. People ask me, what do I think is going to happen to the economy? And I'll tell you what I think. And then I'll tell you what I think about economists. By the way, people are financial advisors to make weathermen look good. The whole idea is we really don't know for sure what's happening, but I read lots of the, well, I read all the national news magazines, but I get money magazines, you know, Money, Forbes, and all those, and people are not sure what's going to happen, but they know one thing for sure. We're only putting a Band-Aid over a deep wound right now, and it's not going to hold very long. It's going to get worse, much worse. And I think God is giving us two or three years, maybe at the most, where we can get our houses in order and get out of debt. Do you understand? That's what I think. And that's what I would certainly encourage you to do if you can do that. So that's what we're going to talk about here. Satan's plan for your money. Now, a lot of people don't understand this, but selfishness and materialism are really part of the devil's plan. You, you understand that that's the case. Now, I'm going to show you how we know that to be the case. First of all, in the spirit of prophecy, Ellen White was given a vision of one of the devil's workers' meetings. Now, I go to lots of workers' meetings. I've been to workers' meetings around the world. All the pastors in the, the Trans-European Division, for example, just a few months back, and we're going, uh, just recently we were at pastors' meetings in New Jersey, and I'm going to Chesapeake Conference workers' meeting, South Atlantic Conference workers' meetings. So we have these workers' meetings where we have strategy for evangelism and so on. Well, if we have workers' meetings, don't you think the devil also has workers' meetings? I mean, doesn't it make sense that he would? Let me tell you something interesting. Ellen White was actually given a vision of one of the devil's workers' meeting. You may not understand this or know it, but Ellen White actually quotes the devil in Testimonies to Ministers and in Councils on Stewardship. And the one that I'm going to show you is Testimonies to Ministers 473-474. She overheard the devil saying, go make the possessors of lands and money drunk with the cares of this life. Present the world before them in its most attractive light that they may lay up their treasure here and fix their affections upon earthly things. Now let me just ask you, if I stopped there, would you think the devil has been successful at this? You get the point. Pretty interesting. Let's go on. 
We must do our utmost to prevent those who labor in God's cause from obtaining means to use against us. Keep the money in our own ranks. The more means they obtain, the more they will injure our kingdom by taking from us our subjects. Make them care more for money than for the upbuilding of Christ's kingdom and the spread of the truths we hate. And we need not fear their influence. For we know that every selfish, covetous person will fall under our power and will finally be separated from God's people. That is incredible. Speaking from 6,000 years of experience, it works, he says, if we can get the people focused on selfishness. Isn't that incredible? That is it. Ellen White also noted in the little book, Steps to Christ, page 44, the love of money, the desire for wealth, is the golden chain that binds people to Satan. This is really incredible. So in my seminars, I don't want to tell you how to become a millionaire. As a matter of fact, once your debts are paid, you ought to be the most generous person on your block. Do you understand? Because you want to be storing up treasures in heaven. Oh, I'll tell you something interesting. You guys understand inside information? That term? If you don't, you can write Martha Stewart and she could tell you. (laughs) The whole idea is she spent time in federal prison because of trading on inside information. You understand? We've got inside information. Second Peter, the third chapter, verse 10 says, when Jesus comes back, everything on this earth is going to get burned up. And that will reduce his value considerably, as you can imagine. <laughs> so the whole idea is, listen, we're told that we should be getting our stuff in a compact as form as possible so not much of our stuff gets burned up at the end. That's Council on Stewardship, page 60. Real interesting situation. Don't let the devil tie you up. And that's the important part. So we're going to look at this. How do we overcome it? God says that he gave us the tithing system to overcome selfishness. You read it about it in Deuteronomy 14, 23. The tithing system. Listen carefully. God does not need the money. And the church doesn't need the money either. Near as much as our people, all of us, need the blessings that can come to us from tithing. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about tithing in this session because it can bring a lot of questions and, and a little bit of controversy. So if you have, you know, this may be your chance to write something down. We're going to look at it. Abraham is called the father of the faithful. I'm going to tell you something interesting about Abraham. Do you think God can do whatever he says he can do? Amen. You've got to believe that. It's very, very incredible. God came in the 12th chapter of Genesis, it's recorded, and told Abraham, get up and get out of your country to a land that I will show you, and I will bless you, and I will make you a great nation. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In the next chapter, you read, Abraham was very wealthy in houses, not houses, but livestock, cattle, and flocks, and herds, and so on. And Lot, who had gone with him, was also wealthy. They were so wealthy that they had to divide because they didn't have a sufficient grazing land. That's how they, they counted their wealth, was flocks and herds in those days. You remember something amazing. He said to Lot, his nephew, I understand that our shepherds are arguing, and it's not good for brethren to argue. That should be in the church bulletin somewhere. But I'll just tell you something amazing. He said, we're going to have to divide. If you go over that way, then I'll go this way. If you go that way, then I'll go this way. What should Lot have said right then? Abraham, you're the senior man here. I'm just coming along. You know, I asked if I could come along. You choose, and I'll go to the other one. But he didn't. What he said was, there's a beautiful valley over here, and a river runs through it. I want to go over there. And one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible is in Genesis, the 13th chapter. 
he pitched his tent towards Sodom. Listen carefully. I have spoken four times in churches in New York City, and I tell people up there, you know, this is after 9-11, and this is an incredible thing to understand. If you read through the scriptures, God suggests for his people that if possible, they're better off with houses in more rural locations, not packed together in large cities. Do you understand? We're talking, I know we don't live in an ideal world, but if we did, that's with a plan. Uh, I told that to somebody one time, you know, about the, the new earth and all of that, build houses and plant vineyards and everything. And this guy says, yeah, but the main attraction is the city. <laughs> so, you know, you can think about it. The whole idea, though, we don't move to the country to get away from people. We want to raise our families away from the noise, the pollution, evil influences, and the violence of the cities. And believe me, in every big city in America, we've got big, big problems. Uh, I won't tell you a lot about Washington, D.C., but I'll just tell you, Abraham lived upon the plains. Somebody came into his place one day and said, your nephew Lot and his family have been taken captive. These four Elamite kings have come and ransacked Sodom and Gomorrah, and they've taken all the stuff, and they have just plain taken it off, and all the healthy people are going to be their slaves. What could Abraham have said right then? You guys aren't mean enough. In, in the south, they would say, he made his bed, let him sleep in it. You know, he could be up here where he's safe, but he chose to be down there. But instead, by this time he was so wealthy, he had his own army. 318 trained servants in his own house. That's Genesis 14, verse 14. And so he went and with the blessing of God and the association of some of his friends, he rescued the hostages. Now, the neat part about this is when he comes back to Sodom, you like the details of the Bible, it's very interesting. The king of Sodom was not taken captive because he had hidden himself in a slime pit. Now, if you can imagine the froggiest pond you've ever seen in your life and then pour petroleum in on it, it's all rusty looking. He's down under there breathing through a bamboo tube probably. You know, he learned survival skills in the military. Anyway, he's down there. When he comes back, he's all drippy looking and everything, and he sees Abram coming with all this wagon loads of stuff. By the way, if you ransack two cities, like San Bernardino and Riverside, and you got all the stuff, you could retire. But the real deal is, the king came out and said to Abraham, because you have rescued everybody, just let us go back and start over. You can have all the stuff. This would be like winning the Powerball and the publisher clearing house sweepstakes and everything else you could think of all in one day. What did Abraham say? He said, I raised my hand before I left home and I told God, I'm not taking anything from these people. Not even, King James Version says, a shoe latchet, not even a shoestring because I trust you to take care of me. So he says to the king, thanks, but no thanks, I don't need the money. Wouldn't that be fun to say to somebody? Uh, I don't think that Sarah was there when he said that. <laughs> she wouldn't have been in the army, you understand, to start with, but unless it was today. Let me just tell you, she could have said, what do you mean we don't need the money? We're living in a tent after all. <laughs> Do you guys understand that he lived in a tent like a Bedouin? He was a wealthy man. Do you know why he lived in a tent? Hebrews, the 11th chapter, when it talks about the faith chapter, by faith Abraham lived in a tent. 
because he was looking for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker is God. He considered himself a pilgrim and a stranger on this earth. But the reason I'm telling you that whole story is he said to the king, I'm not taking anything. But since you've given it to me and it's technically mine, every time I get anything, I always give God a tenth. So he took a tenth off the top and gave it to Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. And that's Genesis 14, verse 20. First time tithing is mentioned in the whole Bible. It's not a command because faithful people have been doing that since the days of Adam, according to Ellen White. Isn't that interesting? And so you have uh, the next one I'll show you real quickly is Jacob. And this one is interesting because when Jacob deceived his old blind father, by the way, Isaac was so blind that he could not tell his sons apart. How did he tell them apart? Anybody know? Feeling their hands. So when Rebecca suggested that they make this, uh, you know, she, well, as an attorney, I tell you, they conspired together. So they were equally guilty in this thing. We're going to deceive the old man so you can get this. And he said, you kind of sound like Jacob. Oh, no, I'm Esau. How did you come back so soon? God blessed me. You know, just something right nearby here. And the real interesting thing is, well, let me feel your arm. His mother had put goat skin on his arm. So he gave him the goat skin arm. And his, he was so hairy, Esau, apparently, that that fooled the old man. Isn't that incredible? So he blessed him. And you understand that when Esau came back and heard that the blessing had already been given, he got livid. You understand there's different levels of anger. Livid is when smoke comes out your ears. I mean, you are really, really mad. Believe me, I can tell you after many years of talking to people about money, people still fight today over inheritance monies. Is it true? We'll almost kill each other. And so Esau let it be known in the camp. My father is old and blind, and he will die soon. And when the days of mourning are past, I will kill my brother. You think he meant it? Yeah, he was mad. He really, really meant it. So they said, you're going to have to sneak away from here and go back to your mother's homeland, find yourself a wife, and, you know, he's going to cool down someday. There's some sad things in the Bible. When Jacob left, he never saw his mother again. He was gone for 20 years, and she died in the meantime. We're told that she repented with tears. And God forgave her. What you may not know, you can read in the 50th chapter of Genesis. She is buried along with Isaac and Abraham and Sarah in the cave of Machpelah. And Jacob and Leah are there too. Six people in the same grave, a cave. On the resurrection day, he will see his mother again. Can you imagine that day? Jacob, Jacob. Mama, they'll hug each other. This is an incredible story, but he never saw his mother again. But the old blind dad lived on and on and on. Isn't this incredible? It's just amazing. He must have made a, a charitable gift annuity to the conference or something. I'm not sure what happened. But the whole point I'm going to tell you about is something amazing. When Jacob ran from home, his brother was an outdoorsman, you understand, who was a good hunter, could track things. And he says, if my brother, when he finds out I'm gone, he's going to track me down and kill me. Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets that he ran for two days without stopping. Now, this is not literally possible, but he'd run as far as he could and just catch his breath and guzzle some water and then run again and run again. He's just totally weary. 
And he found this place where there was a big rock he could hide behind. It says he took a big rock and laid down behind the big rock. He prayed that night. You know what he prayed about? Two things. God, please don't let my brother find me asleep. And I want to come back here someday. So then he dreamed a dream. To me, it's really incredible. It's in the 20th chapter of, of uh, Genesis, about verse 12. He dreamed a dream. And he saw the angels of God going up and down a ladder, which are probably like a staircase. And at the top, God was there. And God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. He wanted to be Jacob's God too. The land on which you lie will give it to you and your descendants, and they will be like the stars of heaven and the sand of the sea, and so on. Jacob woke up, and he said, man, this is an awesome place. I've seen God here. And so he stood the big thing up on the end in the morning, this big stone, like an obelisk, and poured oil on the top, and he called the name of the place Bethel, house of God. And then he said, Jacob vowed a vow. The last two verses of chapter 28. Since you promised to do all this for me, bring me back to my homeland again. I will tell you, as a young adult making a new commitment, you can count on me to be faithful with my tithe. Isn't that incredible? Part of his experience was, I promise you I'll be faithful. That's the second mention of tithing in the Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy says in the 16th chapter, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give, that should be given instead of five, give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. Now, th this is really an interesting. Giving to God is by far the most significant financial factor in life management. I really will tell you, since I'm near retirement age, there are three prerequisites to retirement. They are being debt-free, including your home, having a reasonable income stream to live on, and to have health insurance. I know lots of people that are retired that have none of those three things. That's the ideal situation. Do you understand? Now, Kathy and I have worked denominational wages since we've been married for 42 years. And Kathy's worked a good portion of that, but not about the last six or eight years. And I will just tell you something incredible. Who would think that we put two kids through college with no student loans, that our house is paid off? You get the whole idea. I'm just not going to tell you on and on and on. But the fact is, God has blessed us incredibly. You could not do it with the man. You get the point? It's pretty simple to me. God has blessed us. There's really hardly any question about that to us. So that's the deal. When we put God first, he will give us wisdom. He's going to bless us. Proverbs 3, we read that. Deuteronomy 28. Malachi 3. You know, this is the one that people typically think about tithing. The only one I'm going to tell you about there is verse 11. You know, the verse 10, bring the tithe to the storehouse, and I'll open the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing. You don't have room enough to receive it. And if you don't have room enough to receive it, what do you have? You have a surplus, and you help others and help advance God's cause with that. Now, the real deal is something interesting. However, verse 11, God says, I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. I really, really like that. Do you understand what that means? I'm going to let your stuff last longer. Your cars will run better. Your clothes will last, etc., etc. That's what it's talking about. Pretty amazing. So why do we give? Several motivations, and we'll talk just briefly in just a minute about tithing. 
And the first one, to glorify God as creator, to integrate God into the material side of our life, to show thanks for God's grace and his blessings. So we're going to talk about biblical tithing. Tithing is not a matter of generosity or gratitude. Does everybody understand that tithe is not an offering? It's a matter of simple honesty. Leviticus 27, all the tithe of the land is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. The Lord allows us. Tithe is a tenth part of our income or increase if we're self-employed. This is the first part of our God-given increase that he claims as his own. The word for tithe and tenth are used interchangeably in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. I'm just going to show you a couple of things. By the way, the last mention of tithing in the Bible is in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 10, where tithing is mentioned about eight times. And it's talking about tithing after the order of Melchizedek. Now remember that the Jewish people, who were the priests, the tribe of Levi. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. And there were no Levites when Melchizedek came to receive the first tithe. And Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek of the tribe of Judah. Tithing goes on. Do you understand? Beyond Judaism. And that's just what I wanted to show you there. So here's the significance of tithing. First of all, Leviticus 27.3 says, this is the main tithe legislation in the whole Bible. It's not Malachi. It's this one. All the tithe of the land is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. Since the tithe belongs to God, what could he do with it? Anything he wanted to. Is it true? He could take it all back to heaven if he wanted to. Now here's one that's real scary. What would you think of after we took the offering today at the university church here, that the brethren separated the offering from the tithe and so on, and the offerings they kept for its intended purposes, but the tithe they took back up. Since the Loma Linda program is on TV, this would really be great. You dump all this stuff into a little cauldron and pour some lighter fluid in on it and light it. Just burn it out. The tithe. You know, God did that with the sacrifices in the Old Testament. What kind of a lamb did people bring? Their very best. He burned them up. God could do that if he wanted to. What, good, what did God decide to do with his tithe? Remember, it's his tithe. He decided in Numbers 18.21, I have given the tribe of Levi the tithe as an inheritance in exchange for the work they do, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. This is very interesting. God pays the preachers. We don't. Is it true? You see. Pretty interesting stuff. Now I'm going to show you something else. Tithing in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now this is very, very interesting because a lot of people don't understand this, but the, tith the tithing system is the equivalent to the last day Christian of the tree of knowledge of good and evil for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So George and I, when we were students at the School of Health years ago together, we found out something. One of my first classes was community nutrition, and I found that it was not good to eat between meals. You remember that part? Those who eat between meals have more dental caries, more hypertension, more obesity than those who don't. Everybody understand? It's an absolute fact. So I thought, when Eve was eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, she was eating between meals. We've got a big problem here. That's what caused everything. I had to disavow myself of that when I found this interesting statement from Education, page 25. There was nothing poisonous in the fruit itself, and the sin was not merely in yielding to appetite. So there goes my between meals thing, you understand? I just put these little numbers in here, uh, but everything else is a direct quote. It was distrust of God's goodness, disbelief of his word, and rejection of his authority that made our first parents transgressors and brought into the world a knowledge of evil. So, when we show that we're faithful with our tithe, we show that we trust God's goodness, we believe his word, and we accept his authority. 
Oh, I'll show you one other thing. Anybody who is enlightened in the area of tithing and is not currently a tither is not tithing for one of those three reasons. Pretty simple. Isn't it true? Either you don't trust God. You know, if I give this away, I won't have the money to pay my rent. Or you don't believe his word. Or you reject his authority. Morris Fender wrote a book a number of years ago. God said, but I believe. You know, here's my idea about it. God isn't smart enough to understand. He didn't go to Loma Linda after all. You understand. I'm just kidding you guys about that part. Okay. Let me just go on here. The significance of tithing. Tithing in our covenant relation with God. I'm going to show you this interesting statement. He who gave his only begotten son to die for you has made a covenant. What is a covenant? It's a promise or an agreement. He gives you his blessings, and in return, he requires you to bring him your tithes and offerings. So what comes first, the blessings or the tithe? Blessings always come first. That's what we tithe, isn't it? We don't tithe to get more blessing. We tithe the blessing we already got. That's the whole point of it. So I'm going to show you another thing. Failure to tithe is robbery of God. I want to give you an illustration so you'll never forget this. It's really serious. When I went to law school, I did not intend to specialize in criminal law. But most of you know that any curriculum you take in graduate school, there are certain core courses that you have to take, whether you're not going to specialize in that or not. And so I had to take criminal law and criminal procedure. And I found when I was taking those two courses that there are various levels of theft crimes. And they're treated differently. For example, if when I'm gone someday, somebody drives by and I had left my lawnmower in the front yard, and they drive up with a van and put it in and haul it off. If they were arrested, what could they be charged with? It's just simple theft. Theft by conversion. We say taking the property of another person with no intention of returning it. Let me make it a little more serious. Let's just say that someday I'm gone, somebody breaks into my house and steals my laptop computer. What could they be charged with? Well, there's two crimes in many jurisdictions that you know, merge into one. Breaking and entering and theft, right? Many jurisdictions, it's burglary, classic burglary. Our son Andrew, as I told you, is an attorney. He actually does practice criminal law in Florida. Just a warning. If you are caught breaking and entering the dwelling of another person in Florida, even if you take nothing out, you are, if you're convicted, six years in jail. No questions asked. The judge cannot commute your sentence. And the Constitution protects us in our privacy. You understand? Our homes are supposed to be secure. And that's the real deal. But have I been robbed yet in what I've described to you? No. Robbery only occurs when the owner is present. This is very serious. So I'm going to tell you a story that happened several years back. When I was in ASI, as the secretary of ASI, uh, some of the men decided it would be a wonderful thing for the fathers, the businessmen in ASI, to take their sons and go on a father and son Maranatha trip to Guatemala. Because Maranatha was down there building schools and churches and so on. So that this would be a wonderful idea. And indeed, it was a wonderful idea. So our uh, group consisted of 16 men and their sons. And I was in the group. I didn't plan the meeting. We just got the group together, and we sent the money for the, 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 our part of the church and so on of the school to Sacramento, to Maranatha, and they had arranged for all the building materials and all that, and our transportation. Usually they didn't like me to tell the story because of what happened, but uh, 
Now they don't do that anymore. But anyway, as the things happen when you fly into Guatemala, typically get there in the evening from the United States. We got into there maybe 9 o'clock at night. By the time we collected our luggage and cleared customs, it was like 11 o'clock at night. I thought, I hadn't planned the thing, that part, that they will take us to some you know, elementary school or academy or something. We're going to sleep in the gym floor with our sleeping bags or whatever. But instead, they had rented a bus. And it was an old school bus painted pink with big purple polka dots about a foot over all around it. And then in black writing and script, it said Turista on the side, which in Guatemalan Spanish is translated, rich Americans, please rob us. <clears throat> and instead of going to a school, they decided to drive down the Pan-American Highway to Totonicapan, Guatemala through the night. And so we're on there. 16 men and their sons, academy and college-age sons. I was awake and saw this happen with my own eyes, so this is not hearsay. Most of the others were asleep because it's like 2 o'clock in the morning. I don't sleep very well when other people are driving. I sleep better when I'm driving. So <laughs> anyway, I saw this pickup truck pull out across the road in a place where it was a cut on both sides couldn't go anywhere, and stopped, and men with guns jumped out. So I screamed to the guys, wake up, we've got problems. And I said to the bus driver, I took two years of Spanish when I was in high school, but I forgot every word I'd ever known at that time. <laughs> and I said to him, do not stop, hit the ditch, try to go around. But he skidded to a stop, and a guy came up with a rifle and hit his butt of the rifle into the rubber grommet around the door there that was locked, reached it and unlocked it, and pretty soon there were men all over the bus with guns. One guy with a rifle was standing at the back of the bus, so none of us guys tried anything smart. The smart thing is not to do anything, as you know. At any rate, they started systematically. There was about seven people on the bus with guns. They came down to our row. I'm sitting by the window, and Andrew's by the seat beside me here, my son Andrew. <clears throat> the guy looked at my watch. The row right in front of us, they had just stole a genuine Rolex, real one, not one of these kind that you see under somebody's coat in the streets in New York City, but a real Rolex. But I had just purchased a brand-new Timex at Kmart, that I was going to, because it only cost me nine bucks, and I knew I was going to be mixing them order, and I didn't want, you know, cement gets on it, it's done. So at any rate, but it looked shiny and nice. This guy started pulling on my watch, because everybody was just handing him stuff, but I didn't take mine off. So he started pulling on my watch, and I said, cheapo. I was trying to say it in Spanish. <laughs> you don't want this thing, it's nine bucks. This man had a 38 revolver stuck in his pants. He pulled it out and pulled the hammer back and stuck it right at my head. And he was scared to death, and I was scared to death. He was trembling, and I said, my, this thing has got a hair trigger. My brains are going to be all over the side of this bus. I nearly lost my life for a $9 Timex. <clears throat> so Andrew says, Daddy, give it to him. I did. We were all robbed. Do you understand that? Now, why does God get by with saying failure to tithe is robbery? I thought the owner had to be present. What does the Bible say? Hebrews 4.13, all things are naked and open before him before we must get an account. Very interesting stuff. And David says, where can I flee from his presence if I go to the highest mountain or the depths of the sea? God is there.
Do you understand how significant that can be? Very interesting stuff to me. Okay, we're going to go on here, and we'll just... Uh, the, evasive, uh, the evasion of the positive commands of God is concerning tithes and offerings registered in the books of heaven as robbery toward him. It's pretty serious because several places we're told this is just one example. He who embezzles his Lord's goods not only loses the talent lending of God, but loses eternal life. By the way, there will be many reformed and forgiven robbers in heaven, but no active robbers. You get the difference. Okay, now we're going to go on here. By the way, tithing is an act of worship. Let me just tell you something interesting. There's a lot of discussion now about the music styles and different worship styles and so on in the Adventist church. I will tell you one thing. The Bible does not address that so much, but it does say there's four things that are always present in worship. One is the study of God's word, one is prayer, one is music, and one is offering. Do not appear before the Lord empty-handed. That's a very interesting statement when you think about it. Oh, I'll show you this one. I was raised here in California, and when we talk about Northern California, when I, I, when I, and of course, Kathy and I spent two years here at Loma Linda, but the real interesting thing is when we talk about more than one person, we talk about you guys. We used to, you guys still do that? Okay. But when you move back to the South, where I lived for 26 years working in the Southern Union, it's y'all. Y'all is kind of a nicer word. Yeah, and you guys, you understand? I mean, that's generic. It has to be you guys as guys and girls, right? You understand. Anyway, I thought when I first heard y'all that maybe Malachi was from Alabama or Mississippi or somewhere because he says, bring y'all the tithe into the storehouse. He actually did say that. Bring y'all the tithe into the storehouse. But the answer is not y'all bring the tithe. We bring the whole thing, all the tithe. So the New King James Version says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Not y'all, but bring the whole thing. You get the point? Be faithful. Okay. There's many other things we could talk about. I think maybe we're going to crash here because, oh, I'll just show you this one last thing. You see the idea of the honest tithe here? By the way, most of us recognize that the final movements in our church will be rapid ones. And part of that is a great revival in God's church. Isn't it awesome? And this was what was happening and what was needed at the time of Malachi. He says, return to me and I'll return to you. God hasn't moved. We're the ones that have moved typically. So I'm going to talk to you about honest tithe. Here it is. Three elements of an honest tithe. They are portion or percent, which is one-tenth. I've never had anybody argue with me about that. Another one, place to return it, which is the storehouse. And then the third one is the purpose, and that is to support the gospel ministry, or the, God, the God's church, the ministry of God's church. So it's percent, place, purpose. One of the big questions people have is, where's the storehouse? And I wish I had time to tell you about that. I actually wrote a paper for the General Conference of Biblical Research Institute on that topic, and I think I have something about that, but it's the central storehouse, and I'll just leave it at this. When the Israelites went into the land of Canaan, God said to them, you're going to be separated from the tabernacle. But wherever you are, three times a year, you bring your tithe to the central storehouse. And they did. It's in the book Faith and Finance. Maybe I'll point it out. I'm just going to go through this really, really quickly so you can see. Uh, can you see that fast? You're going to get all these anyway. Three times a year, all the males will appear before the Lord. This is Exodus 23, right after the giving of the Ten Commandments. And uh, an amazing thing, it tells when they were and when they came. But I want to show you one little statement. 
God said, when you come with your tithe, by the way, two of those festivals, the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles, were eight days long. Now, an interesting thing was they were away from home and their property about a month a year just to bring their tithe to the storehouse. But God said to them, I'm making you this promise. I'm going to cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither shall any man desire your land when you go to appear before the Lord thy God thrice in the year. Don't worry about your stuff when you're gone. I'll take care of it. Isn't that incredible? This is amazing stuff that I discovered. There they were, Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles. And I think I'll just show you, this is the last one we'll look at. Anciently, the Lord instructed his people to assemble three times a year for worship. To these holy convocations, the children of Israel came, bringing to the house of God their tithes, their sin offerings, and their offerings of gratitude. The answer to where's the storehouse is the place from which the pastors receive their salary. In the Adventist church, the church has designated the local conference as the place where the tithes are collected. By the way, Nobody who's on the pastoral staff at Loma Linda goes through the offerings on Saturday night and gets out his money. It goes to the conference and everybody's get paid on the same pay scale. Does everybody understand that? That's the way it works. We follow the best I've ever seen of what we call the biblical model in the Adventist church. 